Ladies and gentlemen, welcome for this evening. Uh, I'm very happy and pleased to introduce Professor Tito Boeri to you. Um, Tito has become a centennial professor at LSE, so we are very honored and happy to have him here to change views on so many different important topics. Um, Tito has a career that has been both um, academic and, and, and non-academic. His academic career has been uh, very successful in developing new ideas about uh, how to organize labor markets. Uh, and at the same time, he has been uh, very influential outside academics, if I may say so, um, because uh, he has been certainly instrumental in developing a new legislation in Italy, aiming at uh, um, getting rid of this dual labor market. And this idea was essentially to come to one unified labor contract. And recently, this was in fact adopted in, in Italy and, and, and given legislature content. So um, here we have a person who is not only in thinking hard, but also contributed to welfare um, and has been extremely influential. Um, Tito, as you know, is professor uh, at Bocconi, which is probably the most important university in Italy for economic and business. I will not go beyond these two areas. Um, before that, he was also an advisor to several institutions. Um, uh, the OECD, where in fact he was a chief economist, and he got his PhD from New York University. So certainly a well-filled career. And um, Tito, we are very uh, eager to listen to, new, to you, and I leave you the floor. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for your nice words. I have to say that uh, the uh, two months, more or less, that I spend every year at the uh, LSE, uh, the European Institute and the Center for Economic Performance, are among the most inspiring, and uh, really, it's uh, really a great pleasure for me to be here. Um, so uh, today I'm going to talk about uh, uh, a stress test of the, of, of the welfare state, because uh, I think that in the last few years we had... Uh, a number of uh, stress tests that have been carried out of the uh, uh, banking system. Um, and some of them have been particularly uh, important and have been uh, receiving a lot of attention. In particular, the last one carried out in 2014 by the European Banking Authority has been uh, widely discussed because uh, clearly it was aimed at assessing the resilience of the individual financial institution as well as this degree of systemic risk. Now, surprisingly enough, uh, a similar test has not been carried out. One of the things that is really at the core of the European uh, institution, and uh, which is also, uh, according to many surveys, uh, really a, a, a very important component of what is called the European identity. I refer to the welfare state. Uh, you know, when a stress test is being carried out, typically one looks at what are the consequences on the solidity of the system 
of a major shock to some veterans. In particular, you look at what would happen if uh, yields of uh, uh, some uh, public bonds would change uh, dramatically over time. There would be an increase uh, deterioration of the macroeconomic conditions. Well, uh, now, in terms of the macroeconomic dynamics, we do have data that suggests that uh, for some countries, uh, the uh, Great uh, Recession has been worse, and the uh, following Eurozone crisis has been even worse than the uh, Great Depression of 29. Uh, last week, we had a very nice presentation of a book by Barry Eichinger, and he was making the case that instead, this time was softer, it didn't go as, as, as badly as in, 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 in the, during the Great Depression, um, and therefore uh, we would have had a lot of uh, consequences of this. But uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if you consider a, a country like Italy, uh, and we compare by using the same data that uh, Barry Eichengreen and uh, uh, Kevin O'Rourke had been uh, uh, collecting about uh, the uh, dynamics during the uh, uh, the Great uh, Depression, you see that uh, this time around the situation has been even worse. You see the, the blue line here is the evolution of the index of industrial production uh, uh, after the uh, uh, 29. Uh, this starts basically in June uh, 29. And uh, the, uh, uh, the red line is instead the development since the beginning of the Great Recession. And then you see the Greece is doubled uh, with the uh, Great uh, Recession and the following Eurozone crisis. Matters are different for Germany. In Germany, the Great Depression was clearly much uh, uh, larger, was much more pronounced. Uh, but uh, this time, the development uh, have been quite different. So only the first year, I would say that uh, uh, the dynamics of industrial production in Germany had been resembling to the development during the Great Depression. So, uh, you know, in a way, I think that the type of shock that has been experienced by some, at least some, of the countries of, of Europe is certainly comparable to that of the Great Depression. And I think we can draw a number of important uh, lessons from this experience in terms of the way in which uh, the welfare state of Europe has been facing this uh, really uh, very uh, strong uh, challenge. There is a picture of the Great Depression that I think is particularly revealing. Uh, these are uh, people queuing. Uh, this is the bread line, basically, in Bryant Park, a few days after the collapse of Wall Street. The thing that has always been uh, making me think is that uh, these people are very well dressed. They have a tie, like me tonight. Uh, they, have had, they are really a uh, jacket and so on. So it's, they seem to be really the example of a middle class becoming poor all of a sudden, realizing that without having any you know, sort of safety net, something, nothing to protect them from uh, this uh, type of outcome. Uh, this time we didn't see anything like that in Europe, in spite of the fact that uh, the really fall of GDP was uh, in some countries comparable, if not worse, than in that case. We saw something different. We saw, I think, what I would call uh, the increase of the uh, visible invisible. Uh, uh, because uh, we do see them uh, every night when we go back home, these people sleeping on the street, these homeless people. Um, they are visible for this reason. At the same time, they are invisible because there are not really good counts of them, given that uh, available survey statistics do not... This is 
a result of work that has been done by various, various institutions in Europe, really counting the people, uh, the homeless people in uh, different uh, countries and in different towns uh, in Italy, also uh, thanks to the contribution of some non-governmental organization. As you can see, there has been a very strong increase in that number in, in, in different, in different, uh, in different uh, uh, countries. And if I may open a bracket here, let me say that uh, while doing this uh, censuses of the homeless people, uh, we realize that there is a, a stereotype about these people that uh, has to be challenged because this is not really the truth. Uh, you know, people tend to think that these are persons who are really marginal. There is no way they can be uh, brought back to, uh, in a way, normal life, as we call it, and uh, employment and uh, um, earnings. Uh, where people, uh, you know, like, like this is the typical example of the clochard, um, uh, using drugs and uh, really who have no hope to be uh, back to, uh, you know, to work. While instead, by, while doing this uh, service and uh, looking and uh, counting the people in the streets and uh, interviewing them, because we carried out a certain number of interviews, we realized that, uh, you know, they have children, they are young, uh, so they look very much like us to some extent, and uh, most of them are actually seeking actively for employment. Uh, they found themselves in the situation because of uh, bad luck and uh, a number of adverse events that uh, uh, occurred, you know, the loss of a job, uh, the divorce, and this type of things, and within a few uh, days. But uh, I don't want to, uh, to, uh, to expand too much on that. The only point I was trying to make there is simply that uh, uh, in the last year, there had been a lot of discussion about the top 0.01% of the population, uh, the richest people, you know, thanks also to a uh, contribution like the book by Thomas Piketty and all the work that has been done in really looking at uh, the richest people. Um, but uh, I think in the future we should devote more attention to the bottom 0.01%. So going back to what I was trying to say, uh, when you carry out a stress test, uh, the first thing you want to uh, look is what is the outcome of interest. In this case, we are, we are carrying out a, a, a test of the, of, the, of the property, of the working of the welfare state. And uh, so it's important to define what a welfare state is aiming at achieving. So I think there are three key goals that historically have been given to a welfare state. The first is to reduce poverty. And poverty is a different concept, and we will see also with data, very shortly, uh, than uh, simply inequality, because people tend to say that uh, uh, this is a problem of, there is, a, there is a really a, a, an issue of inequality and that uh, social policy, social protection should be it. Now, the, the really the fundamental task of a welfare state is one of reducing poverty, and it's a different concept than reducing inequality. The second task that is typically given to a welfare state is uh, to protect against privately uninsurable uh, risk, in particular is labor market risk, because you, we never find private insurance companies doing this instead of, of, of a public uh, sector. And the third uh, key uh, goal uh, of this institution is uh, to promote the labor force participation. But I think that the first of these three goals is really the overriding one, and the one I will devote uh, more attention uh, this evening. Let me stress once more that uh, uh, Poverty and inequality are two different concepts that should not be confused. Uh, if you look at what has been going on in Italy uh, since the beginning of the Great Recession and the Eurozone crisis, 
This is based on some work carried out by Andrea Brandolini from the Bank of Italy. You immediately realize that there are two different issues. One is inequality, and the other one is poverty. Inequality is commonly measured by the Gini coefficient, and as you can see, the Gini coefficient between 2006 and 2012 has barely increased, very mildly. But look instead at the number of poverty. These are basically, this, I will call this absolute poverty. Yeah? It's, that, it's absolute poverty simply is obtained by fixing at 60% of the median earnings in the base year uh, the level of the threshold below which uh, uh, people are classified with income are below this, this threshold are classified as being poor and then you just uh, you know, uh, keep this constant in real terms and then you keep on counting people while uh, you know, the poverty the absolute poverty in Italy has been increasing by about one third and you see why because you got all of this action at the two extremes of the distribution. So you got uh, falls in income for the very poor, but also for some of the relatively rich people. So as a result of this, inequality did not increase, but clearly we had a very serious problem of poverty because of developments at the bottom end of the distribution. So are two different things. Poverty and inequality are two different things. And I think we should be very much concerned about poverty more than inequality uh, per se. So this is basically what I plan to do in the 40 minutes, more or less, that I have this evening uh, with you. Uh, first of all, I will discuss as in a uh, stress test, a typical banking stress test, what is the critical threshold. So uh, when we should start being worried, when we see developments in macroeconomic value, when we should start being worried about the vulnerabilities, okay? Uh, looking at poverty development. Secondly, I will uh, ask uh, what, how we can explain the developments that we see. I mean, clearly, we will see that there is a, a very important labor market component of these developments, but uh, these labor market components and the role being played by unemployment may be different because uh, you know, there are various mechanisms by which the labor market can translate into uh, poverty in particular can be job loss, can be uh, postponed entry in the labor market. Think about uh, youth unemployment, people uh, finding it difficult to uh, leave uh, school and find immediately uh, employment, for instance. Or there may be also important flows to inactivity. So we will look into that. The first thing that we are going to do is uh, uh, to see how the social policies really in the various countries have been reacting uh, to these developments. And we will compare also evolution during the first uh, you know, crisis, the great, what we call the great recession, the 2008-2009 recession, and the following Eurozone crisis, because there are important differences across the two episodes. And finally, uh, we will clearly become normative. So up to then, we will simply be describing that. So, uh, from that onwards, we will instead try to say something about what can be done and uh, given that, uh, we will see that uh, the real issue is uh, one of youth unemployment, youth long-term unemployment, and all the consequences of this. And we will argue that uh, this is something we should be worried about because there is really a risk of a loss of a generation. What can be done to avoid this type of evolution? So let, let, me, ask, let me start asking the first question. Uh, by how much should GDP decline for poverty to increase? Uh, Surprisingly enough, nobody has been carrying out uh, this exercise uh, in the past, and I think it's quite revealing. Is that 
So this is basically uh, uh, a diagram comparing on the horizontal axis you have the variation in uh, GDP and on the vertical axis you have the variation in the absolute poverty line. Uh, so uh, clearly as you can see uh, that there is an inverse relationship number two, as we would expect. So when GDP falls, poverty goes up. But the issue is, by how much should go down GDP in order for poverty to start rising? Well, the answer that you get by, this is also pooling, I forgot to say, pooling observation across countries and over time from 1994 to 2010. Uh, so the answer is, uh, if a recession is stronger, so if you have a year in which you experience a fall in GDP which is stronger than minus 0.7%, then you should start worrying because poverty would rise. This is what uh, this uh, is telling us. Now, the next question is, is it the same across all countries or there are some countries for which, uh, in which uh, the, uh, uh, this uh, is, is worse? And the answer is, yes, there are some countries, not uh, something similar across countries in Europe. In particular, if you look at Southern Europe, you got that uh, the relationship is way steeper than what you observe in Northern Europe. Actually, in Northern Europe, it would seem that poverty is almost unaffected because relation is not significant. So you can experience even a very strong fall in GDP in Northern uh, Europe. Here are Denmark, Finland, Iceland, and Norway. Um, and you do not see really a change in poverty, uh, in poverty rates. And that seems to be very much related to the operation of, uh, you know, they have very uh, strong uh, welfare uh, 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 nets and, and protection of a, of a last resort in case of people uh, really uh, losing a job or experiencing negative uh, shocks. So there is an active system of uh, minimum guaranteed income systems operating in these countries, while this type of scheme does not exist in southern, uh, in southern Europe. Um, a similar question, clearly we, uh, uh, the way uh, 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 GDP fall translates into poverty is very much related to the labor market. And, uh, so we clearly may do the same type of exercise by looking rather than at the relationship between poverty and GDP decline, uh, we would look at uh, the relationship between poverty and uh, uh, the, uh, the rise of unemployment. Uh, so we basically, let us ask the same question we asked before, by how much should unemployment rise for poverty to increase? And the answer is 1.3%. Uh, so this is a base point. So that means that uh, unemployment should uh, rise by 1.3 uh, percentage uh, point to, uh, uh, to induce an increase uh, in uh, poverty rate. And again, the picture, this relationship is not the same across uh, countries uh, in Europe, there are some countries that seem to suffer more the rise of unemployment and for which uh, a rise of unemployment is uh, uh, affecting poverty. Uh, in particular, again, we have to say that it is the southern countries that have a steeper uh, relationship, which means that uh, uh, you know, a smaller rise of unemployment would increase uh, by more uh, the poverty rate. While, again, if you look at the Nordics, this is almost a flat uh, uh, you know, line, which means that basically in these countries you can even experience a very large rise of unemployment without experiencing any increase in poverty rates. So that is uh, quite, I think, revealing about the properties of a welfare state in different parts of Europe. It is customary 
to uh, classify welfare systems in Europe according to four models. There is the southern model, which is very much family-oriented and very much unbalanced towards uh, you know, the key element of this welfare state is pensions, basically public pensions. The little welfare state of the last resource social assistance is highly underdeveloped. Then there is the continental welfare state, uh, Germany and Benelux in particular, that has instead more of, of, of unemployment benefits and less of, of pension compared to the southern countries in proportion. The Nordics, where instead there is a very strong uh, uh, component of this uh, uh, assistance of the last resort, and finally the Anglo-Saxon countries, UK and Ireland. Um, so uh, this exam seems to suggest that uh, clearly the southern countries have been uh, particularly, uh, uh, you know, uh, are particularly vulnerable to, uh, to uh, negative uh, shocks like uh, those that have been taking place. Uh, during the Great Recession, but also one should uh, state that uh, the double dip was particularly damaged. Was uh, the second you know, fall was worse than the first one because uh, this is comparing the variation in GDP and the variation in poverty uh, in the southern European countries. Uh, so the right uh, uh, points here. Uh, are uh, the uh, great uh, recession from 2007 to 2009. Uh, the uh, regression line there is the one that I was uh, showing to you before, the relationship between poverty and uh, GDP decline. Um, and the blue points um, uh, here are, are instead uh, the, the second, the Eurozone crisis. You see that uh, uh, if you compare the two, you see that in the second recession, a similar output fall uh, led to a much more pronounced increase in poverty rates. And I think that the likely explanation for this is that while in the case of the Great Recession, the countries could activate uh, all type of measure uh, to reduce that uh, the shock would translate in outright unemployment and uh, also could activate uh, various types of uh, income support scheme for people at risk, uh, the second uh, uh, recession was uh, much uh, uh, tougher because the countries were also carrying out a very uh, tight fiscal uh, consolidation process. So therefore, they didn't have resources to, uh, in a way, compensate uh, uh, the losers. So the second uh, recession was much worse. So to summarize up to now, uh, I think we can argue the following. First, that uh, some countries uh, notably the southern European countries. I didn't say much about Eastern European because, uh, you know, the, clearly the Eurozone was very much a southern uh, problem, uh, but clearly also Eastern Europe is in a similar condition, uh, are more vulnerable uh, to shocks to GDP and unemployment than others. Uh, when uh, GDP falls or unemployment rises, in this country poverty starts rising quite dramatically. And unfortunately, these are precisely the countries that were hit by the shocks of the Great Recession and of the ensuing um, uh, Eurozone crisis. And the Eurozone crisis was worse than the Great Recession in terms of its effect on uh, poverty per given output fall. Now, let us try to understand what has been going on, why we did see that, why we did see this increase in poverty, this quite significant increase in poverty in this country. What is the mechanism? behind this. 
Now, the first thing to notice is that in addition to being spatially concentrated, the disease, the distress, it is also age concentrated. So there is a clear age divide. Uh, if you look at unemployment in particular, uh, the unemployment rate among young people is uh, way higher than among the other age groups. Uh, it seems to be like a heart of youth unemployment. Now, all the southern countries do have unemployment rate for young people that exceed 40 to 45 percent. It's a very, uh, you know, this, these numbers are really quite uh, striking. And uh, uh, clearly, this unemployment, the, the unemployment rate among the young people is way higher than among the other age groups. The ratio goes from two to three, almost four. Italy is one country where we got very close to four, so where four means that uh, the unemployment rate of the 15 to 24 years old uh, people is four times as large as for, uh, for the other age group. So there is a clear age divide in the, uh, in the distress. Now, uh, the clear, the obvious question then is, why is unemployment so much concentrated among young people? Now, there are good reasons to think that this should end. Whenever you have a recession, those that suffer the most from unemployment should be uh, the young people. And this would happen in any labor market. Clearly, we don't believe that uh, labor markets are perfect. We know that uh, labor markets are highly perfect. There are frictions. Um, uh, uh, Chris Pisarides, among others, uh, obtained the, I'm mentioning him because he's uh, the, uh, the, the Nobel Prize because he uh, developed these uh, uh, models of search uh, and clearly the search theory uh, uh, is something that uh, I think characterizes very well the labor market for the young people. So these are people who really uh, shop for jobs are there, look around and they try experiment new jobs. So there, there are a lot of flows, people uh, trying to leave a job and going to another job, so they uh, clearly keep on having a lot of turnover across jobs and experiencing some period also of unemployment when they move from one job to the other. Now, whenever a recession takes place, uh, but, you know, the first reaction uh, of the employers uh, is one of freezing new hires. That's really the standard way to uh, downsize and is the less costly for many to do so. Uh, so clearly, uh, young people will be badly hurt by that type of development. Also, clearly, both leaving school have nothing else than trying to work. And they also will be very much affected by, um, uh, by, this, uh, by this higher increase. So, uh, generally speaking, uh, there are good reasons to think that uh, uh, unemployment should be particularly uh, high among young people uh, in the uh, midst of, 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 of a recession. But uh, are we sure that it is this normal or physiological uh, 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 you know, representation of the youth unemployment, the one that could explain development in uh, Southern Europe? I have serious doubt about that. And the serious doubt increased after I, 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 I computed this uh, uh, a diagram, you know, the, the, the element of this diagram. Basically, here, um, I'm asking the question, by how much unemployment in a given area uh, would rise uh, if there is a shock to the, labor, to the local labor market? Basically, uh, suppose that in, in a local area, so this, uh, this is done in uh, dividing the countries in different regions, uh, and looking at the developments in various age groups, so if unemployment in a given area increased by 1%, by how much should increase unemployment among these average groups? And you see the blue part here is uh, 
the US labor market, where you can think that uh, you know, the usual search theory story applies, and uh, the green line instead is uh, representing uh, Italy. You see that in Italy, uh, a 1% increase in the local unemployment rate involves almost a 3% increase in the unemployment rate of the young people. Uh, while in the US, clearly, it's true that, again, the uh, increase of youth, so youth unemployment is more reactive, uh, is more responsive to an increase, to a deterioration of a local labor market condition. But there is a huge difference in degree, so there is nothing compared to what has been going on in uh, Southern Europe, in this case is particularly uh, the case of Italy. So, more, I think there is more than the pure job search theory to explain these developments and the concentration of unemployment among young people. Uh, the other question is, uh, there are two key mechanisms by which young people may become poor and uh, uh, face uh, uh, you know, these uh, difficulties. One is that they lose a job, so they were working before and they lose a job. The other one is they simply can't leave uh, basically school uh, and they remain somewhat uh, uh, inactive or you know, by leaving school they find themselves they find it difficult to, to find to find employment um, well this uh, is simply a decomposition of the uh, of uh, the, the you know the flows from uh, non-poverty to poverty by labor market status and the message seems to me to be rather clear it is mainly people coming from employment to become uh, poor, and, uh, but there are also some people with, from inactivity, and uh, uh, you know something uh, similar can be done also for for average groups. And clearly, the component related to employment is is particularly is particularly strong. So basically, uh, we have that uh, uh, is is more than a school leaver problem. It's more a problem of uh, people losing jobs, the one that uh, seem to originate uh, the increase. Uh, in poverty rates uh, related to labor market hardship. Uh, so that's something important to be uh, kept in mind. Now, why did all these people lose jobs, and particularly among young people? Because in previous recessions, so that may explain why this recession was worse for the young people than previous episodes. Now, uh, this is a, is a way to... Uh, to look at uh, the response of unemployment to a given output for this is what economists call the open law uh, elasticity. So you look at uh, uh, the variation in GDP on the horizontal axis, as we did before, when we were looking at poverty numbers, and on the vertical axis, instead, you look at uh, unemployment uh, variation. And as you can see, uh, uh, the dots, uh, the, uh, the red dots are the uh, uh, 1970 to 1990 period. The blue dots are instead uh, the more recent years. Uh, again, we see that uh, this relationship became steeper over time. So it seems that uh, um, uh, unemployment has been reacting more, uh, youth unemployment has been over time reacting more uh, to uh, GDP uh, developments. So that means that there is more volatility of unemployment for the young people uh, uh, in, in more recent years. A key uh, explanation, possible explanation for this, is related to development that been taking place in, uh, in Southern Europe in particular, but also in other European countries, uh, and then who under the name of contractual dualism. So basically the fact that the labor market in these countries uh, that were before dominated by just one type of contract 
basically the open-ended contact of the permanent workers, now are characterized by the coexistence of two different segments. On the one hand, you have workers with this open-ended and permanent contract, and on the other hand, you have many workers who have only fixed their contract you know, with an expiring date. Indeed, if we do the same analysis, and this time, rather than uh, comparing evolution over time, we compare countries with different degrees of dualism, which is measured by the share of employees having a fixed-term contract. So higher dualism means that you have a larger segment of the workforce having this uh, temporary contract. We see that uh, we, we do explain you know, this, this type of thing. So the countries where there is more dualism are the countries where unemployment is more volatile or responds more uh, to GDP fall. Put it differently, uh, simply what we see is that uh, if there is more contractual dualism, uh, when a re bad recession uh, hits, then uh, 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 you get you experience a larger rise of unemployment. At the same time, if matters improve, if macroeconomic condition improves, you would expect to see a larger unemployment uh, fall. But clearly, at bad times, this is clearly not very good uh, news. So, to summarize uh, what we, uh, uh, we could say about uh, this mechanism, uh, I think uh, it's not a physiological thing. I don't think it's pure search theory what drives uh, the uh, evolution in Southern Europe and the rise of uh, uh, labor market related poverty. Uh, there is uh, clearly something else. Uh, because uh, this is very much a job loss component. Uh, even if when you concentrate on young people, it's job loss rather than postpone entry in the labor market. And this has very much to do with contractual dualism, so the coexistence in the same labor market of these two different uh, segments. Let us move now to the social policy response. So whether the social system had been how they had been reacting to this. Um, this uh, picture compares the evolution of unemployment and uh, of the uh, two uh, key instruments that uh, tend to prevent that unemployment translates into poverty. Uh, so basically what I'm doing here is to count the red line is the counts of the unemployed people and the blue line is the count of people receiving either unemployment benefits or social assistance. You see, there are countries that have been experiencing a very strong rise of unemployment. This is something we knew from previous data. Uh, but, uh, you know, the striking thing is that the countries like Greece, while they were experiencing this huge increase in unemployment figures, were not experiencing any increase in the number of people receiving either unemployment benefits or social assistance, or put in a different way, the coverage, what is commonly considered as the coverage, uh, so the fraction of unemployed people receiving some sort of income support scheme um, has gone down dramatically. And again, the situation is, looks much worse in the more recent years, so during the Eurozone crisis, rather than in the initial uh, Great Recession. In the Great Recession, somewhat countries were uh, trying hard to uh, cope with this development. Later on, uh, it seems that uh, these uh, tools were, could no longer be activated. And, you know, this is not something that happens always when you get the big rise of unemployment. Look at Denmark. Denmark also experienced quite a significant rise of unemployment. But you see how strongly also 
the number of people receiving UV or SA or social assistance reacted to this. You see that the two lines are moved somewhat in parallel in the case of Denmark. This is clearly not the case in Southern Europe. Spain is not the case, Italy too, and Portugal. So there is something that clearly is not being working there. Also, there is this problem of the age uh, in the coverage rate itself. Um, look at Germany. In Germany, uh, here we look at uh, the unemployment rate and uh, the percentage of unemployed people receiving benefits. They seem to move somewhat uh, together, the two lines. Uh, you know, by age group, you don't see, but you know, they seem to be a, more or less the same profile. Look at that, that Italy, Spain, and, and France, but Italy and Spain are where the situation is particular. You see that for the young people up to the age of 35, you get significantly higher unemployment rate than the uh, uh, number of people receiving unemployment uh, benefits. So there is clearly a coverage which is differentiated by age. Young people do not get coverage, de facto. At least they don't get the same coverage as people uh, who are older in the labor market. And I think that's very important in understanding uh, the uh, concentration of the disease, of the distress among the young uh, generation, which is also witnessed by this uh, diagram that compares poverty rates by age uh, in Italy. You see that before the Great Recession and the Eurozone crisis, uh, uh, families aided by relatively young people were experiencing somewhat lower poverty rates than the other age groups. But the, during the crisis, you know, we got this huge increase of uh, poverty rates among relatively young families. Uh, why? Uh, you know, the blue line here is the only one that doesn't seem to be moving up that much, you know, that seems to go through uh, this uh, very bad and prolonged recession without uh, really suffering too much in terms at least of poverty rates. And this is uh, uh, the person who are age 65 or more. Now, for them, there are pensions. The pensions do act as, in a way, an income support scheme of the last uh, resort, while below the 65 uh, uh, age, uh, uh, the situation is, is way worse, and you uh, do uh, see an increase in poverty rate. Now, sometimes it's being argued that, uh, in a way, uh, the fact that uh, you got all of this... Uh, uh, poverty among young people is something that uh, is not that bad. You know, it would have been way worse if uh, poverty had increased among uh, older people because older people cannot cope, they are, uh, the labor market for them is particularly difficult, and so on and so forth. So this is a, a typical argument which is uh, made. Uh, well, I think that a lot of uh, research uh, instead has been suggesting uh, but uh, we should instead worry very much about uh, these uh, developments among the young people. Um, first of all, because the unemployment that is experienced by young people is often long-term unemployment, so lasting more than 12 years, uh, 12 months. Secondly, uh, there is evidence that uh, from longitudinal study, longitudinal study following people over time, that uh, long-duration unemployment can be very harmful. And uh, also that they have, can have uh, you know, persistence implication on the working life of these individuals, so even 10 to 15 years uh, uh, down the road. Uh, there, there are consequences on wages, on exposure to unemployment uh, spells, uh, and also sometimes even health problems. So these are what are commonly called the scarring effect of 
unemployment. Uh, so uh, clearly, we can't certainly not be concerned about this increase in unemployment and poverty among the young people. And that leads me to the last part of um, my talk. Um, and, you know, that I summarize and introduce this way, simply to stress again, the welfare state does not sufficiently cover the young people, notably in stressed countries. A problem is related to the structure of social protection, but also to contractual dualism. It's a very serious issue. The risk of job loss, of loss of an entire generation is being uh, involved. So, uh, clearly, uh, you know, the, 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 the last part is more on the policy response. And, uh, you know, I think it's also a way to... Uh, to introduce the, to open the discussion that I hope you will remind us on this. Um, so what can be done to avert the, the loss of the, of, of the generation? And I think we should be uh, here uh, honest in, in, in understanding that uh, there are some issues that can be dealt with at the national scale, uh, at the level of the relevant jurisdiction that now are deciding upon social policies and labor market policies, but there are also some supranational dimensions cannot be ignored, especially in this juncture. Um, what can be done? I think we said before that uh, the developments are related to two things. First, a problem of design of a welfare system that uh, in some countries is not very well designed, so that uh, uh, does not really uh, uh, prevent uh, the rise of absolute poverty, there is not social assistance, there are not income support schemes of the last resort. The second problem is one of the design of a labor market institution that tend to concentrate all the risk of job loss among some type of workers, notably in this case, the workers having temporary contents. And it is the interaction between these two developments that have been uh, causing these very dramatic developments in Southern Europe, because you got all the people losing jobs, and the people losing jobs were exactly those who had no protection. According to the design of a social policy. So, the two things. So, clearly, governments in each individual country should try hard to deal with this contractual dualism. And I was quite disappointed by the fact that the conditionality that had been exerted by uh, the supranational institution in Europe, forcing these countries to adjust and to reform all the rhetoric about uh, structural reform, and not really being addressed. This. If you look at uh, the recommendation being issued by supranational, by ECB, you know, the famous uh, uh, Draghi Trichet letter and other uh, you know, conditionality episodes, they rarely mention at all the problem of contractual dualism, which I think is a very serious one. Uh, we, we don't have time to talk about the efficiency effect of this, but uh, from a social standpoint, it's very, very, very damaging. So one thing uh, that could possibly partly address this issue of the contractual dualism is to change contractual rules by making uh, open-ended contracts more appealing for uh, employers and offering some perspective to young people entering the labor market, preventing the fact that all the young people entering the labor market in these countries are being offered only fixed and contract. That's the idea of the uh, 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 tenure-related uh, contract, uh, but uh, really basically introduce severance uh, being uh, related to, uh, to tenure to tenure level. This is something that, fortunately, uh, besides being uh, promoted and endorsed by many labor economists across Europe, uh, there have been uh, many uh, positions of this type been taken in Spain, in, in Italy, and in 
friends and so on, uh, is finally has been implemented because the Italian Jobs Act uh, and this new contract will become effective in a few days. I think is, the date is uh, February the 10th. Is something that indeed introduces a, a very uh, important uh, relationship between servants and tenure over time. So this is the status quo situation in Italy. Uh, the cost of dismissals. Um, um, for uh, individuals having different uh, tenure in terms of months. As you can see, it's a flat line. Basically, uh, what happens is that in Italy, if an employer hires a worker with uh, an open-ended contract, and the day after hiring this individual, find out that uh, the worker is not, uh, is not sufficiently qualified for the job, and uh, the employer decides to uh, lay off the worker, then he may have to pay uh, you know, a huge amount of money, and the huge amount of money is the same that the employer would have to pay for an individual who had been staying for some 20 years in the firm. So clearly, it's difficult to make a mistake about someone who's been staying for 20 years in, in the firm, but in the case of the young people, especially both jobs that are currently being uh, you know, growing the most, uh, you know, it's very difficult to assess the quality of, of a worker based simply on, on a CV or even job interview. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why in Italy uh, basically there are no hiring of young people uh, with uh, open-ended content because basically the risk faced by the employer is too high. So the new uh, open-ended contract in Italy will be instead like this one. And as you can see, uh, the compensation to be offered to a worker in case of a dismissal will be steadily and gradually increasing uh, with tenure without putting the employer in face of this wall. This huge cost in case a contract, an open-ended contract, is being offered. I think that's a, certainly a useful way to deal with contractual dualism, and possibly, hopefully, will lead to some reduction in the role of temporary employment in Italy. Something similar, I think, should be done also in other countries. And the other thing that uh, an individual country could possibly do is to work on the coverage of unemployment benefit and allow the unemployment benefit to uh, cover even people who have relatively short tenures. Uh, as I said before, uh, you know, all these people leaving uh, a fixed-term contract rarely receive any type of income support. The reason why this happens is that you need to have some minimum vesting period before you get entitled to this type of schemes. You need to have been working and paying contribution for a while before you get access to this. Uh, there are here the problem of moral hazard, and, uh, various type of problems why this thing is done, but I think certainly this country should try as much as possible to make this eligibility condition less strict for people having relatively short spells of employment and relatively short contribution period and allowing people to accumulate contribution periods over time. So I've been working two months in a job and I got unemployed and I got another job and I paid the contribution for another two months. So you can accumulate all of this period to qualify for unemployment benefit and and also offers social assistance to these people. So Italy has done something like that in the Jobs Act, has made the requirement less stringent, so now even people having only three months of contribution in the last four years can get some uh, income support in case they lose a job. What Italy has not been able to do is to introduce a social assistance of a last resort scheme, like that is operating in Nordic countries, that would have been very important for long-term unemployed people, because clearly, uh, the people with short tenure can get at most uh, income support for one month, one and a half months in this case, more or less half of the contribution period, the one you get, you get the income. What happens if this individual do not find a job afterwards? Uh, what can you do to protect them? But here, clearly, it's much more difficult to do that because these things are clearly more costly.
Back, extremely costly, but certainly they involve uh, amounts that are close to 1% of GDP. A country that have to carry out a very uh, tough fiscal consolidation process are not in a condition to introduce from scratch uh, such a scheme. So Italy has, uh, you know, for the time being, avoided to do that. It's quite understandable given the easy uh, fiscal rules. And this uh, really leads me uh, to, uh, to the supranational dimension. Because there is also another consequence of the Great Recession and the ensuing uh, Eurozone crisis that, in my view, has not been fully understood. Up to then, there had been some convergence in the uh, degree of social protection being offered across European countries. If you take a very crude measure of the differences in the importance of the size of the welfare state across Europe, basically social spending over GDP, and we take the coefficient of variation the measure of dispersion across countries, you see that, uh, especially since the mid-90s, there has been a dramatic decline of the difference. So basically, countries have been converging. The countries were spending more on social policies have been somewhat containing, there have been downsizing a bit uh, the uh, social policy over GDP uh, uh, ratio. Uh, the countries instead that were spending less had increased. So uh, the dispersion across countries have been reduced. But uh, this convergence uh, stopped completely uh, since uh, 2009. So we, we, we do live with uh, very huge uh, differences in, in this uh, respect. Um, so clearly uh, there is an issue here that I think is, 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 is a macro issue, but clearly has a very important consequences also on social policy. Um, so the, the problem is that when you face asymmetric shocks like those that clearly were experienced during the Eurozone crisis, um, you know, it's very difficult that uh, national uh, jurisdictions can really cope with uh, these huge challenges. Um, this is a decomposition of the differences in unemployment rate between uh, countries and within countries, basically these are regions, the individual countries. And uh, you know, the key message that is coming out is that look at you know, the, the second part, you know, the second, you know, the, 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 the second day. Uh, it's, it's amazing how much uh, the, the, the rise of unemployment is associated to differences across countries. There is not really being uh, much within taking place. In Italy, unemployment has been rising throughout the entire country. It's not the southern problem, in an example. But similar story can be made about Spain. These countries have very, very large differences, regional differences in unemployment rate, but there is a clear national dimension there being involved. And uh, if a country overall, this country has to uh, really cope with that type of problems, may find it difficult. I mean, there should be some way to, uh, if you want really to have a stabilizer to operate, they should also allow from some uh, you know, risk pooling across countries. Otherwise, in a, in a monetary union, when you get uh, this... Uh, Asymmetric shocks, you really are in, you are really are in, in trouble. So the key issue is, do we uh, want to uh, somewhat move in the direction of creating some EU-wide uh, stabilizer? Uh, and let me go back to the analogy with the banking sector, because uh, you know, after all, I promised to start and produce a generate tonight a kind of stress test of the, of the welfare state. Uh, sometimes you know, it is argued that the vulnerability of some banks um, should be handled by uh, promoting some bank mergers. Um, 
I think that uh, we did clearly see that uh, during this uh, uh, crisis, uh, some countries were extremely vulnerable uh, to the shocks. And poverty rates have been skyrocketing in this country. So that's something clearly that suggests that the welfare state has not been operating as it should have been operating, that uh, stabilizers have not been operating as they should do. Um, so I guess that uh, we may think that uh, this vulnerability, to keep the analogy, should be faced somewhat by pooling risk. Um, and um, there are various ways to do that. One way is the re- relatively radical one that was uh, also proposed uh, some years ago by Tony Atkinson, so one of creating a sort of EU-wide safety net of a last resource, something funded at European scale and preventing absolute poverty, the poverty relief scheme operated at the supranational level. Another proposal that has been made also more recently, it was the past the former Commissioner for Employment in, in Brussels that had been you know, suggesting it, but this was more an intellectual uh, uh, idea and nothing that has been done in that direction. is one of creating an, an unemployment benefit system being operated at the European level. But it's perhaps something which is more feasible, although clearly less ambitious, but in my view would also make some sense, given the uh, peculiarity and the concentration of unemployment among young people to create a kind of equal opportunity contract uh, that uh, gives some money uh, to uh, a new hire, so it's an employment conditional incentive, it's a way to increase chances for individuals to find a job, it's, it's a way to rephrase this uh, youth guarantee that seems to me to be failing everywhere. Uh, so basically it's like an endowment which is given to new hires that can be used by these people to uh, buy uh, uh, social security, like uh, also pension rights, because we should not forget that for these young people there is a serious problem of pension entitlement in the future, or also to buy training, also to make it, uh, you know, their jobs more long-lasting, uh, investing in, in the job. So, to conclude, what are the lessons that we can draw from the stress test of the welfare state we have been experiencing? A real test is not the one that is being done by uh, authorities in uh, secret and uh, then you, you get on the newspaper the result. This is something that all of us could observe and strangely enough we have not been really commenting much about it. Um, the lessons I think are that there are clearly many things that uh, individual country could do and should do uh, to avoid that uh, uh, GDP falls, uh, unemployment shocks uh, do translate into an increase in poverty, particularly in the land of the welfare state that is, Europe. But uh, if you get exposure to these asymmetric shocks, and these shocks are relatively long-lasting, it seems that it's very difficult to do this without having some sort of shock-absorbing mechanism being operated at the supranational level. So if there is a conclusion that I think could be drawn from this analysis, that uh, we have been talking so far about the welfare state, and I think given also the stress test of the, of the banking system had been indicating that we need to have uh, some, something which is run at the supranational level. We should move in the direction of the banking union. Well, perhaps also in the case of a welfare state, we should start talking about a welfare union rather than simply a welfare state. Thank you very much, Tito, for this uh, impressive uh, analysis of uh, 
the fragility of social systems in countries, in particular in, in southern countries, and, and um, the insight you give us about how um, <clears throat> recessions affect these countries in particular, and, and more importantly, how it affects uh, the young people in these countries. And I think this is a very important analysis because it also allows us to understand why in these countries now we get these extreme political upheavals. Right? It's no accident that um, young people that are hit so badly by uh, the crisis turn to other political parties than those that are in power today. Right? Um, so I was very much impressed by your analysis, and that leads, of course, immediately to the question what to do about it. Uh, and you indicate uh, a number of areas in which uh, one might want to, to move. One thing I was not particularly uh, impressed about was your comparison with the banks, and in particular bank mergers. Uh, I certainly favor what you propose, that is some kind of pooling of risk to unemployment benefit schemes at the European level. But bank mergers is probably the worst that one can do. You would make the banks even bigger. And as we know, big banks are very dangerous. But that's a totally different discussion that I don't want to go into now. Um, I would like to open the floor for questions, uh, comments uh, that you may have. Please identify yourself before you start. Yeah. Oh. Well, the young people first. <laughs> and, <laughs> in which case I can't refuse uh, I'm Corrado Macchiarelli I'm a visiting fellow at the European Institute so thank you uh, Tito for, for this uh, very inspiring presentation I just wanted to have your view on one point because you, you make the interesting comparison with respect to the banking union and you know, we all know that we came to the conclusion of banking union because of you know, financial market being fully integrated. Unfortunately, however, you know, labor markets in Europe are not integrated. And do you think you know, uh, more investment, especially in, in mobility, both from origin and recipient countries, should be a condition uh, or, yeah, uh, before, you know, in a sense, having a welfare uh, system at the European level? So I wanted to have your view on that. Thank you. Should we collect a few questions? We, we why don't you answer, and then I will uh, go to the next question. <laughs> People here are getting upset. We cannot give them the floor. Uh, uh, now, this is a very nice question and an important one. Um, I, I certainly agree that uh, uh, there is also a very important mechanism by which you can do some sort of risk pooling or an insurance being provided at the European level, and this is basically related to labor mobility. Labor mobility is very important because when things go wrong in a given country, uh, uh, you know, young people in particular can also look for employment elsewhere, and uh, uh, that clearly is, is, is important to reduce uh, poverty rates. At the same time, clearly, this may create problems in the uh, origin countries because there is a lot of uh, the contribution based, you know, they, uh, these are potential taxpayers, there is a, a loss of human capital, there are all the various things that have been said. But certainly, you know, as a shock absorber mechanism, uh, labor mobility is, is very important. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the two things, uh, uh, having uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, U-wide uh, uh, safety net or a U-wide unemployment benefits and the fact of having labor mobility are two things, are two different uh, ways to answer the problem. Actually, I think there is a strong complementarity among the two. Because, um, you know, the, uh, the, the clear challenge faced by labor mobility in Europe right now is the fact that uh, there are all of these populist movements that uh, do support and this often induce government to reintroduce uh, barriers to mobility, even of EU citizens, sometimes challenging even the uh, Rome Treaty and the principle of free mobility of workers. And the key uh, factor that is often uh, called into play to uh, advocate this restriction is the fact that uh, there is a lot of welfare shopping. So these uh, migrants, these uh, young people are going to a country where the welfare system is more generous simply to draw benefits there. So if these schemes are being operated at uh, a European level, then the problem of welfare shopping is becoming much less relevant because clearly there will be, first of all, some harmonization of levels across countries, so welfare shopping has no arbitrage possibilities. And secondly, given that this is being paid at the European level, clearly the consequences for the national taxpayer that worried about these fiscal externalities will be significantly lower. So I think uh, you know, the two things should be done jointly. And if I may say something about banks, you know, clearly there are dependent, dependent banks. You know, one thing is to talk about you know, uh, huge banks and giants. Another thing is to talk about the small banks that are present in some countries that often are those that really are particularly vulnerable. In Italy, there are quite many of them. Right. So that for them, some mergers, I think, would be a good thing. Yeah. In our case, the uh, University of Warwick and the European Institute here, also aging juveniles, so I'm not quite sure what I count as a young or an old person here. I am interested in some of this visible invisibles that you started off talking about, because one of the indicators which I find interesting is the growth in um, multi-generational households across Europe, um, young people staying at home or going back to living with their parents. And um, the data on that seems to me even more compelling than your data on homelessness and the scale of the problem is or the challenge caused is even greater. This also throws up all kinds of issues about what's counted as a household, how is income being counted, um, uh, income levels and poverty levels amongst households, if households are recomposing. Um, it also raises issues about um, substitute welfare um, systems, of which we've been talking for many years about the way in which, for instance, pension systems served as effectively transfer systems for young people in countries which were had um, you know, sort of pensioner welfare states but no other welfare states. And I wonder whether you could comment upon that when you are looking both the measures of stress, because I think that's a good measure of stress, and some of the solutions. Another very good question, and uh, I think it's particularly appropriate because uh, the role of the family is, is very relevant in the countries that have been 
so much affected by uh, this uh, crisis because in southern Europe, uh, typically uh, the families is a very important uh, you know, unemployment benefit system. Um, so um, young people losing a job go back to their uh, family and clearly get uh, income support from their families, including also the pensions, you know, indirectly are also being used to support the income of the young uh, people. Now, this type of mechanism, though, has not been particularly uh, successful uh, this time round, and uh, we see that from the very... Uh, it's true that some people, indeed, some young people uh, decided to go back uh, home, and, uh, uh, you know, we had a trend towards... Uh, a reduction in the size of the families, uh, which was a long-term trend, uh, we got a reversal of this because some young people decided to go back home. Um, uh, so certainly that mechanism has been operating, but clearly the data that I was uh, producing uh, before do suggest that clearly it has not been sufficient. It could not prevent a major increase in, in poverty rates. And there is some indication that because one thing is to, uh, you know, when it is uh, simply a postponement of the entry in the labor market. So that is something that families can cope with in a uh, somewhat better way, fashion, than uh, when it is job loss. So, you know, you just end up uh, your school, your university, and if it is the labor market is poor, um, you keep on doing, uh, you know, perhaps studying, investing more in human capital, uh, you are still with your parents, uh, um, not always, but in some cases it is the case, and therefore that type, that type. But when it is job loss, things are quite different, you know, because uh, clearly uh, individuals may have been moving away from their families, and, you know, the unemployment benefit system played by the family requires that you live in the same uh, you know, in the same dwelling, that we, we share the same house and so on. So that's clearly a, a different mechanism. And uh, when uh, you get uh, this uh, labor market hardship related to uh, job loss and the temporary employment, I think that the family can do less than it was done in the past. Plus, there is concentration of risk in young people and so both uh, the component of the household may lose a job, and that clearly creates the problem of poverty. Okay. I have a person there. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Not this. Yeah. Good evening, Professor. Um, I came here from the House of Commons because I, I desperately needed to come and meet the person who's talking about the welfare and welfare of individual human beings. There is an issue that we need to really uh, tell young people about looking after older people when from several, whatever the age of old age and come to the end of life. This is something that cuts, it costs what? A thousand pounds a day, 365 days a year. This is serious money. Companies and organizations are chipping in on this type of things because they know that the ordinary family don't do that. Where I come from in the Caribbean, Ireland, St. Kitts? If a person don't look after the family, it's shame. So everybody in the, in the village would know you never look after your family correctly, and it's a shame there. Therefore, 
For people who are coming to the LSE, Oxford, Cambridge, London, um, Harvard, or wherever they come from, people need to understand what exactly life is about. It is too much of an, I don't know how to say it, but an important issue for but young people and old people to understand what people is. It's, it's all right for a person to have fallen in love at 16, 17, 12, 13, up to 20, 21, whatever age they have the baby. And then when they have the baby and the baby come along, then there's after maybe 8, 10 months, the child would be expected to look for being party training. But when you're <laughs> from birth to 50, 60, 70 years old and continue to have party training all those years, all those years, young people, <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> I have to laugh. Young people need to understand that it's something that life is all about. They come to the LSD, they go to London, they go to Oxford, they go to Cambridge, they, wherever they go. But that little bit of family issue is missing. Thank you very much. I hope you will reply. Okay, thank you. Say something. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Hello, Angelo Martelli, PhD candidate at the European Institute as well. Um, just to follow up on the, the last answer, so don't you actually envisage the need for uh, an intergenerational transfer, a real one? I know in Italy it always raises a lot of eyebrows when you talk about patrimoniale and so on, but there are other ways you could actually envisage this inter inter intergenerational transfer. And the second question is actually, you have talked about a centralization of the welfare state in a way at supranational level, but do do you think that because of the structure of labor, mar labor markets, because we, have, we should actually move towards a collective bargaining um, that actually takes place at the firm level, shouldn't these be also, shouldn't the welfare state you know, as well be taken to a firm level? Uh, very important issues. Uh, the first one is, is intergenerational transfers. Yes, yeah, certainly uh, in these countries, in the countries experiencing this very strong rise of poverty among the young people, there is scope for uh, uh, introducing uh, safety nets uh, that uh, do protect this individual. This, by definition, would involve some intergenerational transfer insofar as uh, these schemes have to be paid by the general taxpayer and the beneficiaries are among mainly among the young people, but also a well-designed unemployment benefit uh, or an unemployment benefit that covers more uh, uh, people with relatively short tenure unavoidably involves some transfer from the uh, uh, you know, older workers to the, to, the young, uh, to, the young, uh, to the young people. So clearly, yes, I was advocating that. Uh, there are also other ways to, to think about it, and uh, I think countries are considering this and various levels in terms of changes to the design of retirement schemes uh, or also uh, inheritance taxes and this type of thing. So there are various ways to conceive what can be done. But even you know, just the two uh, key things I was referring to before, 
involve some uh, not to talk about uh, education investment in education are typically you know if uh, pension are uh, an institution that they distribute from relatively young to relatively old uh, in the case of the of the education the uh, the transfer operates the other way round so investment in education uh, would also be a way to uh, uh, to improve um, uh, the, uh, the condition of, of, a young, of a young people. Uh, concerning instead the, uh, the bargaining levels and the, uh, the welfare state being operated at the plant level, there have been a number of experiences of this type um, in various countries. Clearly, to be activated, they require that bargaining takes place at the plant level, something that not always is the case. Uh, uh, fortunately, uh, I would say that uh, there has been some change in this respect because uh, typically most of the discussion about, again, the structural reforms and also the conditionality of the uh, uh, ECB and uh, the Troika has been uh, more in terms of uh, cont contract, flexibility, uh, cost of layoffs and much less on uh, wage uh, uh, setting, uh, but in more recent years, in a number of countries, including Spain, Portugal, uh, in particular, there has been more decentralization in bargaining system, and that opens up a possibility that you, at the plant level, you operate, not only you negotiate over wages, but also you operate uh, uh, some uh, uh, schemes that are uh, aimed at uh, avoiding redundancy, or when redundancy take place, uh, they somewhat uh, create some sort of solidarity among workers and provide protection. Uh, that are certainly something, experiences that are important if you look at uh, uh, what has been going on in Germany during the first uh, session, because Germany, as we have seen before, experienced this huge drop of GDP uh, in 2008-2009. The fact that in Germany there was not uh, a major rise in unemployment and no consequences on poverty was also related to the operation of this uh, pact for employment that were uh, operated at the plant level. So moving towards more decentralization in bargaining is certainly something important, although clearly cannot solve uh, the problem, the fundamental problem, which is not only a problem of uh, having more risk pooling at the national level is also one of risk pooling at the supranational level, as I was trying to argue before. Okay. Yeah. Hi, and Lorenzo Codogno. And <laughs> recently, I was chief economist. Act. You mentioned that in Italy we have you know that in order to get to that point we had to give up something to, uh, uh, to social partners. In, in other words, the, uh, the kind of uh, the, the, the result of the negotiation was such that uh, we had to grandfather existing contracts. So effectively, basically, all contracts will continue uh, to, to be unchanged. Some people claim that uh, this was um, a bit undermining the, the reform because although it reduces the duality of the labor market in Italy, at the same time introduces fragmentation because you might perceive that uh, you know, people that uh, already have uh, the job might be reluctant 
to change because by changing they would actually have a, the new contract which is more flexible effectively and they will, would actually lose protection. So the question is how serious in your view is this problem or uh, whether it can be overcome you know, over time and so forth. Second issue is related to the unemployment insurance that you mentioned, because the, uh, as you know, we had uh, the, um, the European, the, the presidency of the EU, there was uh, the Italian presidency of the EU in the second half of last year, and uh, one of the topics we decided to, to pick up for the discussion of ministers was indeed uh, a European un uh, un unemployment scheme. And uh, we knew that, uh, you know, the discussion was not mature, effectively. So uh, the, we had very low expectations on what we could achieve in the debate. Uh, but we decided to go ahead anyway, and we said, well, let's have a kind of very open, balanced discussion just to start the process. And, the Maybe in the future semesters we could continue the discussion. So uh, the way we, uh, we did was to, we commissioned a, a paper to Bruegel, and uh, Gunther Wolf uh, came to Ecofin and uh, presented this paper. The paper, in my view, was extremely balanced. So it was not like uh, we need to do, you know, it was, you know, just presenting the pros and cons of uh, these schemes. And uh, I happened to be in the room, you know. It was a nice discussion with ministers. And uh, clearly, uh, Italy was uh, uh, the uh, rotating presidency, so uh, usually the president doesn't intervene, okay, because he's chairing the meeting. We knew that France was the only country openly supporting, you know, the idea. And uh, I have to tell you that there was no one single minister supporting <laughs> Okay. And, uh, and uh, I, of course, I won't reveal the names, but uh, I, I have to say that the debate was not uh, a very high standard, okay? And the, the, uh, the, the reasons uh, put forward by, by ministers uh, were not of economic uh, uh, origin, so to speak, but they were mainly political. So basically, uh, ministers were saying that, uh, uh, you know, following the European elections, which was, you know, a big signal by, you know, the electorate and so forth, there was basically no political appetite to increase integration. That was the main, uh, okay, point of, of the discussion. Um, and uh, I have to say that despite the paper and the presentation was very balanced, there was no one picking up uh, the, the advantages of, uh, of you know, an, a European unemployment scheme. So my question is, what can we do to make uh, this idea more appealing to European policymakers? An easy one. Huh? <laughs> uh, okay, now, first of all, the, uh, the issue of the, of the design of the, uh, of the Jobs Act. Now, I agree with you. Uh, clearly, this reform is something that uh, involves only the new hires, 
Although there is an important exception that uh, sometimes it has been overlooked. Uh, consider a firm. You know, in Italy now we have uh, uh, two regimes. One applies to the firms having less than 15 employees, and the other regime applies to the larger firms. This is something common also to other countries. Uh, the most restrictive uh, form of employment protection laws that give rise to that flat segment and very large redundancy pay in case uh, 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 to be paid for even workers who have a very low tenure. Uh, this is the called, so-called reintegration, reinstatement uh, uh, issue. This applies only to larger firms, those having more than 15 employees. Now, under the JOBS Act, if a firm starts up being, having less than 15 employees and therefore is subject to relatively uh, mild restrictions to layoffs, and then grows up going above the threshold of the 15 employees, the new contractual regimes apply not only to the workers who have been just being hired, to the new hires, but apply to the entire workforce. So that's a quite powerful mechanism to extend the coverage of a new contract to a larger segment of the workforce, and at the same time to remove a kind of obstacle that uh, was uh, in the past operating and uh, discouraging the growth of firms in Italy. At the same time, I acknowledge the fact that there is this problem that you were mentioning. But, you know, one has to uh, make a decision sometimes, and in this case the decision was should we do a reform that change the rules for everybody by changing very little, like the Fornero reform, or should we do a radical reform, changing rules only for the new hire? This is what political feasibility uh, could achieve at this stage. And I think the government went for the second route, and I think it was a good decision, because this this is a serious reform, no doubt. It's something that changed quite dramatically. There is a problem that we didn't talk about, but I don't want to enter into much into Italian things because here there are also non-Italians, which is the issue of disciplinary layoffs, which has not been satisfactorily addressed in my, in my view. But uh, broadly speaking, I think this is an important reform. Of the, of the labor market. Concerning the uh, EU-wide unemployment insurance, I'm not surprised by what you said. Thanks for <laughs> telling us this. Um, um, I, I've been going to uh, in a number of meetings because uh, Laszlo Andor was my, very much a supporter of this idea of EU-wide unemployment insurance and always found that the proposal uh, was not very well received. Um, also among, you know, not only among politicians, but many uh, other people operating at the European level were not so much convinced about it. I think, yeah, it's something that for the time being lacks feasibility. So that's why I think that a more modest proposal, like the third I was making, the one of the, this equal opportunity contract, call it as you wish, uh, that I think would be a good start for, uh, given that uh, there is this age concentration of uh, of, um, of a poverty and unemployment problems. And given that we already had the youth guarantee uh, program that has been a major failure, uh, I think that would be something that we have some probability to be able to, to put in place. Okay. Peter? 
Uh, my name is Peter Tetzens, so I'm PhD student at the European Institute as well. Uh, so I have a question regarding your proposal to share risks, social risks on the European level. Um, as you show, Nordic countries typically manage these risks quite well on their own, uh, so there's not too many risks left to be shared with the south of Europe. So what would you propose to convince them, like Nordic countries, to join the European risk pool? Well, <laughs> clearly there, there, is a, there, is a, uh, there are various issues here that are both that have been also debated in uh, moral hazard, uh, the fact that uh, clearly there will be. But, you know, insofar as uh, this asymmetric shock uh, can, can hit various countries over time, you know, it's not always, it's not uh, written in stone, but it should always be the, the same countries, both that are hit by the shocks and therefore who should receive uh, some sort of uh, support from the others. Uh, and clearly there are very important spillovers you know, across jurisdictions. So creating large uh, poverty uh, uh, in some countries can exert uh, quite negative spillovers on the others in terms of social cohesion, in terms of migration, of, uh, and many other things. And I think uh, Germany has been... Uh, experiencing some of these type of things. You know, there was a major diversion of migration flows from Southern Europe to Germany as a result of this. My question was actually on immigration, not but Can you uh, identify yourself? Um, I'm just a member of the public and an alumnus here. Um, so do we need a welfare union rather than simply a welfare state? I love it. How do you solve the welfare union without solving immigration into Europe? Is that something that's in your work? If you could comment. Uh, this is a very important point. I tend to agree that uh, clearly Europe, uh, while uh, moving in this direction, should also try and develop a common policy for legal migration. Right now there are some uh, clearly agreements concerning illegal migration, but countries do have uh, significantly different policies for uh, uh, migration of third uh, country nationals. Um, I think it would make a lot of sense to uh, integrate and coordinate this policy because this is clearly migration is an issue that there are, by definition, very substantial spillovers across countries. Uh, so okay, it makes sense that you coordinate this. And secondly, this very idea of having a single market for labor uh, is at odds with the fact that uh, you have different. Uh, Policy, even if it is not policy for EU nationals, but for, for country nationals, still that affects also the mobility of European citizens, the competition across jurisdictions, and all of these things. Um, I think also that uh, you know having a common policy at the EU level would be uh, uh, you know also something that there's more uh, a probability of being enforced because there is a very serious problem of enforcement of, this, of these policies if it is done the same way across countries and, but you know I, we, we would open a very long discussion here, I mean we can talk for a long time about migration policy and the right type of migration policies for Europe uh, but I agree with you it is badly needed to have more coordination in that respect One last question Ferdinando Giuliano, Financial Times. Uh, so my question is, imagine you are a policymaker in one of the southern countries which you talked about, and you face some really hard constraints because the fiscal rules are given, unfortunately, and you're trying to change them, but you can't. 
Germans don't want to pool unemployment benefits, so the only way to address this is really changing the composition of the welfare budget and how you spend your money. Now, is there a case for moving more resources away from pensions towards unemployment benefits for the young, even if that involves touching so-called acquired rights, i.e. the fact that some of these pensions have, you know, have been already agreed and you can't change them? Thank you. This is a question addressed by a journalist, and I have to say that uh, since uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, just before Christmas, uh, asked to become the president of the Italian Social Security, I, I decided not to uh, <laughs> to talk in public about pensions, uh, and I think uh, it, it was, in a way, the right decision because, you know, from that day, I thought that anything I would have said would have been interpreted. The position of the Social Security Administration. At the same time, I could not represent uh, an administration that was not part of. So uh, clearly, uh, the silence was. But the only thing I can say is that I wrote a book a few uh, years ago. The title was "Less Pension, More Welfare." So I think uh, be, but, uh, I have some coherence in my thoughts. Then I think I would align it to that title. So, despite despite this book. Uh, you, you have been appointed to become the president <laughs> of this uh, social um, organization. Well, I wish you the very best. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Tito, for this exciting talk, also for your um, responses to the questions that were very pertinent and sharp. Um, so this closes this uh, lecture. Um, thank you very much, and have a good evening.